I believe 1000% in the power of education in transforming people's lives. I don't like necessarily the institutions that are constructed around these things. As a person who has no credit, going to school is the only place you can get a guaranteed loan by the government. I have no credit history, and so I can get a loan backed by the government, and it's the only kind of debt that you can have that's not forgivable through bankruptcy. Right. It starts to feel like the administration becomes front of house for banks, mm -hmm. for loan companies. Notice also, once you graduate, your loan, the student loan that's backed by the government gets sold to a real bank so they can wash their hands. Well, we saw what happened in 2008 with the subprime mortgages tearing a financial hole in the universe. Imagine what's going to happen when students all default. Yeah. Those are scary times. People jumping out of buildings. Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends. If you're doing it the right way, anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Deerdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Travis Makes Friends podcast. Today, I am making friends with Chris Doe. Chris, what's up, man? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, man. Yes, sir. Happy to uh, be here in Las Vegas, like five minutes from my house, but it is not home for you. You're out in Pasadena. Yep. Have you been there for a long time? Um, in and out, but now we, we recently moved, so we've been in the house now for a little over a year. Okay. Yeah. Uh, where'd, you, where, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Northern California in San Jose, um, moved down to Los Angeles to go to school, and I've been in L.A. ever since. So the debate, what's NorCal versus SoCal? What's Oh, you want me to create war with it, my family? Exactly what I want you to do. SoCal. Yeah. I'm going to send it to them, yeah. SoCal it is. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I'm biased because I grew up in SoCal, but yeah. um, I spent a decent amount of time in, in Northern California as well. But, man, I just can't, I can't beat the SoCal vibes, man. Yep. Every time I go back, I'm like... Uh, I think I could deal with the taxes, <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. but I moved out to Vegas maybe six years ago now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've been out here for a little, for a little while, but man, you can't beat the weather out there. That's the one thing you can't, there's nowhere that I've been to that compares to just constantly being like knowing, knowing to like a, you know, 85% amount of being sure that you can walk outside at any given point and being like, yeah, it's nice out here. It's hard to beat. I've traveled a lot throughout the world, and yeah. every time I ask myself this question, since I can live anywhere and work anywhere, it's just a conscious decision to be here. And yeah. every time we go and come back, it's like, it's not dry, it's not humid, it's not too cold, and it's mostly warm yeah. and pleasant and sunshiny and beautiful people and interesting foods and cultures and industry. It's the right mix. Yeah, no kidding. You can get anywhere. It with the you know several different airport options especially yep. in Pasadena you're not like in the heart of Los Angeles where yep. it's where it's as bad you're kind of away from some of the traffic at least like obviously there's still traffic everywhere yeah, but that's the worst part yeah yeah the yeah. the 210s 
still got a lot of traffic on it. Not as much as the five, but it's still going to be. Look at this. Two SoCal guys talking about the five, the four, five, the two, ten. Yeah. Oh, man. But hey, man, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you. Uh, Rich and I have been trying to make this happen for a little for a little while now, so I'm happy it just kind of last minute ended up working out. Yeah. Um, so let's kind of dive a little bit deeper. So you grew up in, in uh, NorCal. Yep. Describe for me, set the scene for me of like nine-year-old Chris Doe. Okay. Um, so family life, you know, school life, all that kind of stuff at nine years old, set the scene. Living in the Valley, San Jose, um, suburban neighborhood, middle-class income. Okay. Um, still trying to figure things out. Nine years old would be probably as my parents still trying to move up from the lower middle class as we kind of ascend and pursue the American dream. Every couple of years, my parents move us because their jobs afford us a better life. And so we move from pretty rough parts to like upper middle class neighborhoods. And okay. I always identified as us as being poor. And I was shocked one day to find out because we had to fill out some paperwork for school, how much our parents made. I'm like, mom, dad, we're not poor, not based on these numbers. Why do we still live this way? And like, <laughs> that's just the way. Uh, first generation immigrant? First generation immigrant, yeah. Okay. How did do you think that that affected you growing up? Absolutely. How do you think it affected you? Um, well, I don't have any memory of my home country. Okay. Um, we, so you hear very little. When yeah, I was three years old when we okay. fled Saigon, fall of uh, Saigon, communism, escape, land in Kansas City, go to move to San Jose eventually. But land in Kansas City. Yeah, it's a, it's a sponsor thing. Oh, um, gotcha, gotcha. You know, large families they need someone to help them acclimate. So it's usually church based. Gotcha. So we're okay. Catholic. Catholic woman. Her name's Aunt Barney. Older white lady. Her her husband had passed and. She sponsored our family. Okay. Other families were sponsored in Arkansas, some in San Jose, but my parents, huge families. So eventually we kind of regroup into yeah. like one place. Okay, and smart enough to realize that San Jose is a better place to live than Kansas City. <laughs> I think it was just kind of random to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I really do. Really, yeah, San Jose? Because more, more of my father's uh, siblings lived in San Jose because okay. there was a different sponsor. There are more sponsors. And so then they're just like, hey, it's easier to move one family than to move six families mm. or, or six siblings. You know, yeah. it's just a lot gotcha. easier that way. It's a good decision, though. Yeah. yeah, right, right. Definitely, definitely a little bit better of a spot. Yeah. Uh, so education, was that a big push? I find, a, I find fairly often whenever I speak to anybody who's first generation immigrants, it's like almost a skewed high uh, expectations. Uh, in terms of education, was that similar for you guys or absolutely was it different? Okay, there's truth to certain stereotypes, and if you think about it, when you have nothing, you you lose your country, your culture, everything about what yeah. you had. What is the way that you can move up? And the only path that was clear at that time was through education. So, yeah. education very important. I remember this. I I think I was in junior high, maybe uh, maybe still elementary, and I found out like one of my friends from school, white kid. His dad bought him a BMX bike when he got C's for his report card. If I got C's, I'm packing my bags and leaving home. <laughs> you know, enough B's and, and we're having problems. Yeah, right. It's the expectation is you must get straight A's and that's it. Right. There should be no deviation. Um, so the, the, I don't know, I'll tell you, I've told this story before. There was once I got a C and it was not a good scene. So you know what I did every day? Because I knew I was getting a C and I think it was a science class. I rushed home to intercept the mail <laughs> and I ran home every day. I'm like, oh my God, okay. Cause my parents work, yeah, so they're yeah. gonna come home at five. And so as long as I get there you before- got the, You got the two hour I, gap. I, I have a two hour window. Yeah. 
uh, intercepted the, the mail. And it's one of these ones that are like you tear at the edge, it's perforated, and you rip it open, and it's carbon copy. You know, it's a carbon print. Yep, yep. And that's how I learned how to do forgery pre-Photoshop. <laughs> so I took my mom's um, electric racer. My mom's a designer drafter at IBM. She has all these drafting tools. And there's this thing. It's a massive electrical powered eraser with this long, you know, like tools to slowly erase at sea. I'm like, what should I give myself? <laughs> what should I give myself right How now? How ambitious am I? Yeah. Rich's mouth is wide open right now. Chris, you're not as square as we thought. So you know what you do? You take a blunt number two pencil and you dull it down so it's the same width as this mono character uh, yeah. typeface that you have. And you practice redrawing characters on the front and then you make sure it's kind of like the same. Mm. So then you move it over where it's supposed to go and I'm like, A is too much. I'm going to give myself a B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. B and then... But you a plus, I think a plus is better, flags. Yeah. right? So and then it, it looks a little fake, for sure. And then you take the carbon, you rub it, so you smudge a little bit. Yeah. You give a little war damage, and then you put it right back in there, like, no problem. The thing about it is, though, if you add up the GPA, it doesn't equal the number. Oh, no. So it's cool. My parents were none the wiser. To this day, I'm sure they still think I never got a to seat To this day, life. really? To this wow. day. Wow. Until wow. they listen to this, and then I'm dead. Yeah. Well, I already, told you, I already told you I'm sending Statue it to Statue of limitations, so. <laughs> man. <Yeah>. It's expired. <laughs> Science, was that uh, one of your not interested subjects? You know, I, I, I'm, I wasn't very interested in school. Hmm. And I, I'm trying to figure this thing out because I got A's very easily. Uh, I, I wasn't even paying attention to the school board me. I went to public high school yeah. and, and public school. So the topics never interested me except for the electives. And my, my older brother, who's a really smart, ambitious guy, got his master's degree from Stanford just to show you the gap in brain power. <laughs> I was just like, let me take shop. Let me take woods and metal shop because yeah, that's yeah. a yearbook. And he's like, what are you doing? These are fun. This is what I want to do. So I would apply myself to those electives, but never to the other stuff. Mm. I, and I could listen and, and pass the exam. I would do the, the, the what is that called, crunch time studying. Sure. And yeah. I would memorize what, it, what vocabulary words, and then it was gone the next Just day. Clam. Yeah, yeah, I'm done. But it was easy. Is there, besides just that, are, are there other kind of personality differences between you and that sibling? Like, I guess, I guess, really, what I'm asking is more about the creative personality type versus other types of personalities, because it seems like that was just something that was kind of just in you from the beginning. Yeah, there. I, I'm the middle child of three children. I have two brothers, and the age difference is four years from my older brother and then one year from a younger brother. Oh, wow. Okay. And the interesting thing about my mom and dad is there are two, my uncles and aunts from both sides of the family could not be more different. My dad's an engineer. Um, all his brothers and sisters are in Silicon Valley doing something technical, mm. fairly stable income, doing quite well, American standard, right? Mm -hmm. And then on my mom's side of the family, they're all super like emotional, beautiful, artistic people photographer, painter, artist, all broke, all trying to figure out life, mm. many divorces and all stable. It could not be more different. Interesting. And then I am in the middle, but quite literally the middle of my two parents. Yeah. My older brother, super logical, computer science, software engineer, works in Silicon Valley, does really well for himself. My younger brother is a free form artist a person who, who never went to college. Hmm. So you have a guy who's got this master's degree from Stanford, and a person who never went to college, I'm right in the middle. I got a bachelor's degree in art and yeah, design. Yeah, right. It's like, it's like the at the time when you declared art as your major, what was your parents' reaction? Um, I think they 
my dad thought it was a joke. I think he was in denial. <laughs> and he, he couldn't. He's like, all right, good one. Good you know, one. and it's not that it was my first choice either. Because yeah. I applied to UCLA, UC San Diego, and Cal Poly uh, San Luis Obispo. And okay. I only changed it to art because I thought it was going to be easier to get into the program. Mm, interesting. I thought I was going to still like sneak in the back door. And then I was a little shocked and scared when they said send us your portfolio. I'm like, portfolio? Yeah. Wait a minute. I have a couple of pieces, but I don't have a portfolio. So I submit my portfolio and unsurprisingly got rejected out of all three schools. Mm. And I had this little bitterness, like feeling quite dejected, thinking, my God, I couldn't get into a single school. I wish I saved the letter, but I do remember it. The one from UCLA who said, um, you demonstrate potential, but you're not ready. I'm like, I'll show you one day. I don't have yeah. potential or, you know, I'm not ready. It was, it was true. I wasn't ready. Yeah, yeah. So I went to community college and that's like for Asian kids, like purgatory. <laughs> you're not alive. You're not dead. You're just somewhere in between. Yeah. You're just acceptable. Yeah. yeah. You go to vocational school and become a mechanic or something <laughs> and you're the shame to your whole family. <laughs> Yeah. So then what happened after community college? Well, luckily, my older brother, um, and, and he he was to me like a surrogate father. He looked up for me. He said, hey, come to San Diego. I'm studying, preparing for grad school. Uh, you can come live here, get away. And we, we always use this term, the parental units, uh, so that you can start to figure out your own identity. Mm. And so I went there and I started to enroll in, in design programs. And it's a, this thing called commercial art. Like, this is cool. I went through an entire freaking catalog looking for something I wanted to take. So you still you still had this propensity toward art the whole time. Like n there was nothing that was ever like to go the mechanic route or to go a different no, route or I'm to go back to academics or like just art was just some, it always called to you. Uh, yeah, to more degree. specifically graphic design. Okay. So there were painting classes, illustration classes, but the one I went to was like screen printing, a graphic design intro to, to computer-aided design or something mm. like that. That's what I was interested in. Have anything to do with your mom being that, like being in that world at all? I don't think so. Um, my mom is a self-taught artist herself. She paints with oils and pastels. She worked at IBM as a designer drafter working on chip design, chipboard designs. Mm. Uh, okay. Back then they used to do it by hand, like, like a thousand percent magnification or something like that. Mm. And that's what she used to do. But it, it, I don't think it came from that. It's just... I didn't know it at the time, but I had an unhealthy obsession with emblems, logos. I didn't even know that was a thing. Mm. I was attracted to fashion brands that had crests. I, I wanted to go to, to Yale or Harvard because I thought, what is this cool shield emblem they got where these other schools have nothing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I later on learned the term heraldry and these crests meant something. Mm -hmm. And I was just like really drawn into that. Yeah. Um, I skateboarded and the the companies I found the greatest connection with had the best graphics. So yeah. I was into Powell Peralta, Santa Cruz Skateboards, Dogtown, uh, Santa Monica Airlines, just because they had, in Sims, the coolest designs. And yeah, yeah. I, and, and this is, I don't think this is uh, unusual in that there are a lot of artists who found their way to art through skateboarding because of the design aspect of it. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Mark Gonzalez is an artist. There's a bunch of people out there wow. that are artists um, at Templeton, there's a bunch, and they find it through skateboarding. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. So, so you you have this kind of curiosity, let's call it, about branding, design. It's not going away, <laughs> and you go further down the rabbit hole through the community college time. Yeah. So then you start reapplying to to different schools at this point. Yeah. So my last year in high school, now that I've been rejected out of every school, 
I wind up working in a silk screening shop and my boss, his name is Brad Shaboya. He's this really burly, stocky guy. He plays rugby. His nose is broken like three times. He has a mustache and he has a really deep voice. And he goes, Chris, what are you gonna do after school? I'm like, I don't know. I think I'm gonna go to arts school. He goes, well, you need to go to art centers in LA. There's all these cocky bastards just like you. You'll fit right in. <laughs> I'm like, art center? That sounds like the most generic school name ever. Right. And so when my mom asked me, what are you going to do? I said, mom, I'm going to go to art center. She goes, you are? And so it's pre-internet. My mom starts doing research calls and finds out the school and finds out how much it costs to go there. And she has sticker shock. And to my dad's dismay, the tuition to go to art center is the exact same as Stanford. And he's like, why couldn't you go to Stanford? Oh I'm like, dad, I would go to Stanford. They could accept me, yeah. but I'm clearly not smart enough to go there. I've got a 3.8 GPA. You know, I didn't take any interesting extracurriculars. I didn't yeah. write a great essay. It's not happening, Dad. So it's one of those things where it's like, he just looked at the tuition the same. Why can't you go to prestigious school instead of going to a dead-end school? Right. But I know nothing a about Art Center yeah. except for it's in L.A., except for one person had told me that's where you need to go. He could have told me, go to RISD, go to School of Visual Arts or some other school, and that's where I would have gone. Hmm. So first class, San Diego City College, Candace Lopez, says, get a journal, and then write in your journal for week two what you want to do, where you want to be. I wrote in there, I, I want to put my portfolio together so I can get into Art Center, and that's what I want to do with my life. And she just wrote this giant thing, and I wish I had that notebook still. It's like, oh my God, this is a place for you. I will do everything in my power to help you. It's super exciting. Wow. I was probably one of the few people who wrote in their journal that had a clear vision as to where I wanted to be. Yeah. So for the next two semesters, I worked on my portfolio to get into Art Center. Wow. Okay. So yep. that's where you ended up going. Yep. And well, it's a real school. Yeah. It happens to be one of the best schools <laughs> in the country. Yeah. And I'm so fortunate that by circumstance, I was recommended to go to that school. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah no kidding. No kidding. Um, okay. So uh, shortly after this, uh, and I've heard this part of the story, so I want you to kind of piece this together for us if you, if you can, just like timeline wise. Shortly after this, you get an offer to do a business partnership with somebody yep. and they're basically saying like, we want to do some design. We need you to be the designer, but yep. we'll basically fill up your entire workload and we'll do all this. Other. So, so piece together the story, the timeline here of like what happens in between these, this time where you're in, uh, in school and then this business opportunity kind of just pops up out of nowhere. Yeah. So I'll give you a pre-roll the tape a little bit. So set up the context. Yeah. December of 1994, as we're wrapping up the semester, um, one of my friends uh, who's a copywriter, her name's Colleen Mathis, she goes, Chris, I got a job at Colin Weber in Seattle, and, and I'm a copywriter, but I need a partner and an and art director. And they asked me, do I know anybody? And I recommended you. Can you send your portfolio um, to them to see if you... And I was going through a really rough patch. I was becoming really disillusioned with school. I had another semester to finish, but I was like, this place sucks. Everything's terrible. I hate this. I'm not getting any real value anymore. So I'm like, I'm going to take a semester off. I'm going to apply for this job. I'm not an advertising major. So I'm like, I'm probably not going to get the job. So I, instead of putting a lot of pieces in the portfolio, I put in four, only four. And I put them inside a FedEx box and I sent it out. These are the four of the most conceptual design oriented things I've got. Hopefully that's enough. They called me, uh, Dolly called me and said, we're gonna hire you, we're gonna pay you $40,000 a year. I tried to negotiate. She said, we're gonna pay you $40,000 a year. I said, thank you, ma'am. <laughs> and you're gonna say thank you. And that yeah. was it. And so now we're heading into 1995, January. I'm, I'm 
working in Seattle. And I finished, I didn't finish, but uh, I need to go back to school and finish my last semester. And so Kevin, Kevin Jones, my boss, like, we want you to keep working here. I'm like, how's that possible? I gotta go back to school. And he said, we'll fly you back and forth. No, and I was kidding. like, holy crap. I am a 21 year old kid. Right. I have an expense account. I'm flying back and forth. I'm pitching on big accounts. I, I was like, I, I'm, I'm just freaking super lucky as heck. Yeah. He offers me a job. He offers me to, uh, to pay me $85,000 a year. And she had just negotiated with me 40K. Yeah. So within months, I'm moving up that ladder really quick. So I'm flying back and forth, feeling like a superstar. I didn't even care about my classes where I'm just going through the motions and just turning in projects, whatever. I don't go through uh, any of the portfolio orientation, senior portfolio, or any of the on-campus interviews because I'm like, I'm going to work in the ad agency. Sure. Well, a couple of weeks or into that, I'm like, oh, this is not working for me. Something happened, so I quit working at the agency. So now I'm screwed, and I graduate. No job, no interviews. I don't know what I'm doing. And you didn't do any of the stuff. I didn't prepare yeah. jack. I skipped all those things. Oh, no. I'm good. I'm good, people. Don't waste my time. <laughs> So what happened was one of my buddies, a guy who uh, I looked up to who graduated many semesters before me, he was working at this punk rock music label called Epitaph Records. And right then, The Offspring. What's that? Based in LA. Based in LA, yeah. The Offspring and punk rock was making its huge resurgence and it was blowing up everywhere. I got to meet Mr. Brett from Bad Religion and he said our company grew 1000% last year. It was nutso, like punk was everywhere. And so I wound up working there just for a few months, uh, a month and a half, and then my boss gets fired. I'm like, I'm out. He's gone, I'm gone. You know, It wasn't like days after, but it was pretty quick. And now what? So I'm freelancing around LA, and this is when the call comes. And the call comes from my uncle, his name is Michael. He calls me and he's like, I know since you were a kid, you've always wanted to start a business. Are you still interested in doing it? I'm like, heck yeah. He goes, my business partner and I, want to start a design company. We, we run hotels, boutique hotels. I'm like, okay, write a business proposal, we'll meet you and we'll finance your thing. And that's what wound up happening. So over dinner at the Western Bonaventure, uh, his business partner, Bob, writes a check on the spot, hasn't even read my business plan. I handed him a business plan that was a piece of crap, it was like 14 <laughs> pages with phantom projections about what we're gonna make in three years. Yeah, right. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And he well, really, he, nobody knows what they're doing when they're writing a business plan. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> especially a twenty-year-old you know? kid who's never <laughs> yeah, run a exactly. business before. I don't know anything. Yeah, and he just thumbs through. He's like, okay. He reaches in his pocket. Like, What's happening? What's happening? He starts writing his check. I'm like, that can't be for me. It's a five thousand dollar check. He tears it off. One of these long ones. He hands it across the table. It's like this is a good faith gesture. I'm interested in running, doing the business with you. It looks like you're asking for hundred grand. Consider that an early deposit. Yeah. So I'm off to the races. Right. Five grand feels like a hundred grand when you're. Well, five grand when you're broke and you have a, a massive amount of credit card debt. Yeah. I had maxed out two credit cards at that point. In Perfect. Time <laughs> to just put myself through school, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and I go and tell the person I'm freelancing for, "Yep, when this booking's over, I'm done. I'm starting my own business. See ya." I didn't say it like that, yeah, yeah, but yeah. the interesting thing was Ian Dawson was the executive producer at this company called Novacom, and he had also offered me a job. And he's like, we're gonna pay you 55K. I said, Ian, the last job offered me 80, and I walked away from that job. Yeah. If there's not an eight in front of that number, I'm not even interested. And I know what he's thinking, you cocky mother effort. Yeah, exactly. You're just a kid out of school. You don't even know aspect ratios. You don't know nothing, <laughs> but I hear people like to work with you here, Yeah. right? And I said, yeah. So what happened was I started telling my 
coworkers. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna go start my own company. So the words traveled really fast. So Ian with a big smile, he's like, Chris, you didn't give me a chance to counter. You didn't give me a chance to counter. I said, Ian, you had your shot. Yeah. I'm such a bastard. I'm just telling you right now. Like he had like two days to respond and you didn't respond in the affirmative, you know? So I'm like, yeah, I'm out. He says, well, best of luck to you. And I know Ian, we're friends now. I know when he said best of luck to you, it's like, you're going to come back crawling because yeah, it ain't right, going to exactly. work because you don't know Jack. Talent will not be the thing that takes you through. So I wind up opening a business, called it blind and started doing work. And fortunately for me, my business partners at the time, who owned 51% of the company, had financial problems. One of the hotels they were developing overseas was having some problems, mm. some government issues, right? So they're like, we can't focus on this. I said, well, where's the money? Because I'm running a business and I'm already profitable. Yeah. I'm kicking myself in the butt thinking, I only got 5,000 bucks and I gave away 51% of my company. World's dumbest business investment. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. Luckily, they defaulted. I kept the 5,000 bucks. I was once again a free man. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So the business basically just got turned over to you. Yeah. Basically I closed the business, started another business, called yeah. the same thing and changed like two words and right. now we're in business again. Yeah. And how did that version of the business go? That version of the business went from December of 1995 to, uh, I think 2019. Yeah. So, so it went for a while. So you never went back and asked for the other job. No, I'm not. And somebody told me, Chris, you're unemployable. I'm like, it's true. I'm unemployable. I cannot work for people. Yeah. Why is that? Why, why do you think that is? Because I'm, I'm too stubborn. Yeah. I have ideas and I don't like the way people do things. <laughs> and I have a strong opinion, right? So the reason why I wound up not working for the ad agency, I had the best boss in the world. Kevin Jones is an amazing person. But I saw two things that happened, which I think I was just being a little cranky and, and arrogant at the time. But I had worked on this big pitch for Silicon Valley, um, this uh, computer, SG, Silicon Valley graphics or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, the, they made supercomputers to render like frames for like Abyss, the James Cameron film. Mm, wow. And Colin Weber won the account and they had a party and I wasn't in town. So they had the party without me. I'm like, I was one of six people who worked on this. Couldn't you guys have just yeah. tried to coordinate with coordinate me as I was going back and forth? <laughs> and I felt a little left out. I'm like, is this how corporate right. America works? I'm not saying I carried the account, but I was a part of it. Sure. And the other thing is, once they got the account, I started working on it. They had to hire a whole bunch of new people. And so I, I was reporting to a new boss. Mm. And that boss, I don't think he liked me. I don't think he respected me. And, and you didn't really much care for him. I was well, ready to do whatever. But when you don't respect me, I'm like, I don't know what to do here. Yeah, right, right. You know, I'll tell you, and I'll tell this story. I don't care. <laughs> He's a great copywriter. And I'm a leper in the ad world because I'm a designer. I'm not a conceptual thinker. Mm. I don't know the ad game like art directors do. And I got that title. So what he wound up doing is he was working with his art direction partner from the other office instead of working with me. And so his partner would like come up with designs Ugh. and concepts. And then he said, can you just lay these out? I'm like, there's a whole department over there that does that mechanical work. Right. I'm not that guy. I, this is silly. And right. I don't agree with any of your design decisions here. This, is, this felt like an insult to me because I actually designed the work that was part of the winning pitch. Right. And like so it just felt like this is so weird. Here. What's yeah. that? Like the reason that you're working here is I, because I think of so. The, the reason why you were brought over from the other office yeah. to run this team was because myself and a couple other really brilliant creatives won the account. Right. And I know what happened. He had said, Chris, I just need you to do this. 
And I looked him right in the eye in his office, in the corner office, and said, well, I don't want to say his name. I respectfully decline. And I walked out of his office. And I, I was sitting there thinking, I knew he wanted to throw something at me. Yeah. And I just walked out. And I walked back to my dingy little closet office right next to the bathroom. And then the phone rings. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm telling you, it's not 300 feet from his office to this little corner. The phone rings. I pick it up. And it's my real boss, Kevin. He goes, Chris, I heard what happened. I'm like, okay, fire me. Dude. Like by the time you got back yes. to your t- Literally, I walked back there and the phone rang. And I knew what was going to happen. You can't tell your boss, uh, I respectfully decline. That's like giving him the one finger salute, right. right? That's an act of insubordination. I'd fire me. So the phone rings. I'm picking up. I'm like, I, he's like, I heard what happened. I'm like, yeah. He goes, I want you to go home. You should take a break. Let's talk tomorrow. I said, okay. Hang on the phone. He didn't yell at me. I'm like, what's going on? This is weird. Next morning, he called me. I mean, I'm in the office again. He goes, let's get you on a different account. He's like, it, it doesn't have to be this way. Mm. I said, Kevin, I just realized something. And I'm, I'm glad it happened. In this world, I am not appreciated. And I would never feel like I belong. Mm. So I'm going to go back to school. And I'm going to finish. And I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. And he goes, okay, okay. I, I totally understand. Why don't we just keep it open for, you know, he was the, he's the world's best boss. I, yeah, I've, yeah. I've only had a couple of bosses in my life. If I could choose, I would always choose to work for him. Hmm. He's the most generous, gracious person, super understanding. And he treated me like a star. And so that, that was like one of these things where I, I just, there's too much around you, Kevin, and you can't change that. Right. And if I could only just work for you, I would, but I can't. So yeah, you're, you're also kind of chained by the circumstances. Yeah. I mean, yeah. think about it. Like, as a designer, we want to make things. We want to push the envelope. We want to try things. And we, 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 we want to be messy and crazy. Yeah. In the ad world, it's like make it as simple as possible. Right. Uh, just do center type in all caps and let's just be done with it. Right. They kind of frowned upon, traditional advertising frowned upon overly designed ads. <clears throat> there were a couple of agencies, however, that were groundbreaking, that worked with designers and pushed them to the front. White and Kennedy, who does Nike work, mm. Crispin Porter Bogusky, who uh, who had this superstar, Alex Boguski. There were a couple of agencies in America that were pushing the edge. European agencies were already doing this. Hmm. So America was like Futura, condensed, bold, all caps, <laughs> on a white background, just do that. We'll be good. So like why are you hiring designers? You know? Well, yeah. see, in their world, copywriters ruled. Right. They're the ones who capture the imagination, yeah. who, who form the ideas, who, Drive who write the messaging, yeah. everything. They ruled, and writers who had an aesthetic were called art directors. A designer like myself was usually in the back room working on production art. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. 
You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like, like, like hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is, is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Do, do you think that all of this is kind of what also disillusioned you from going to school as well? Like there's kind of the same the same kind of attitude toward people? I, I find that People who are not great at being an employee, meaning they don't like people telling them what to do, like exactly what you're describing, are also not great going to school and being in this context of like, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, and, and having a lot of rules and things like that. Was that what it was for you or was it something else? This is a, com- a complex question that you're asking. The reason why I was disillusioned with school was the tuition was so much. And I could see now that there are going to be a bunch of people who are going to graduate who didn't have skills they're going to be in deep trouble. Mm. I remember one time there was a guy who graduated, I think a year before me. And I was like, I wonder what he's doing. And I go to a blockbuster and I see him working behind the counter and it broke my heart. I kid you not, this is not a fabricated story. I'm like, this is really rough because now this person is saddled with so much debt and they would never be able to pay it back. I'm sure it was a temporary glitch in the matrix. I'm sure he figured it out. But the fact that that was his job after going to school for four years, that's rough. And that's a reality. The the school stamp out students. And that's okay when it's being paid for it, but when you pay for it, that's not okay. Right. And so that's the problem. And I saw that now that I was more informed, I saw that there were there's a shortage of high quality teachers. And so the teachers I really looked up to were just a handful. Hmm. That was problematic. I think I will follow orders if I'm inspired by the person who's leading. Yes. Because right. when I freelance, I worked for Kyle Cooper, I worked for Garson Yu, and they're with a company called RGA, then later on became Imaginary Forces. And I never met designers in the field that knew more about design and type and design history than these two guys. Mm. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, this is where I was meant to be. Yeah. Because this is one of those things that the type nerds in the audience are gonna understand. When Garson told me to typeset it in Bembo, but not Adobe Bembo, but Bertard, uh, I didn't even remember the foundry name. Like he wanted that cut of Bembo. I'm like, holy crap, right. you're that specific. And he would whip out an old book and say, you see how these letters are different? Redraw the letters so it matches this one, the original cut, and not that, that junk font that everybody's using right now. Huh. That's when I'm like, this I can follow. I will, sure. I will go uh, into shark-infested waters with you because you know what you're doing. I'm going to learn a lot. That is exactly describing my attitude toward toward most authority. It's like if you're just authority for the sake of being authority, then we're probably not going to get along very well. But if it's like you hold this position and I respect the way that you like who you are, the way that you got it, the knowledge you have, then I'm totally fine to 
be under you or to report to you or take orders from you even at some time. You know, it's just like you, you got to be able to respect the person that's throwing the orders down or they're just going to piss me off <laughs> yeah. more than anything else, you know? Kyle and Garson went to Yale to go to design school. They studied under the design legend Paul Rand. Hmm. They had Armin Hoffman give lectures there. Like the, the people I saw in books, those were their professors. Yeah, yeah. So this was ridiculous. So there's a lineage here. I'm like, wow, their knowledge of design, their eye for details surpassed mine. So I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to learn here yeah. or I'll die but I'm gonna learn. And so they taught me a lot. So did you feel like you got what you needed to get out of school? That's a loaded question. I, I, I would not be here today if I didn't, but that doesn't mean that it's a good they idea could have done me. more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because obviously you're highly, you're, you run an education company, you're highly ingrained in education, you believe a lot in education, and you are a master educator yourself. So there's a, a tie to really good formal type education, but just not in that context or maybe not for every every person or not that expensive or kind of like what, because I, I, art being one of those things, there's, you know, that plus 80% of other degrees that are just that, like you said, people are just saddling themselves with excess debt. They graduate with a mortgage payment and then they get a job that doesn't allow them to pay anything on that mortgage payment, which they can't file bankruptcy to get out of, even if that was an option. So where, like, where do we go from here as, as an educator, as somebody who like, you're not somebody who's just tearing down education and being like, Oh, everybody should, you know, go into plumbing or whatever. It's like, as an educator yourself, what's, what's the solution? I believe 1000% in the power of education and transforming people's lives. I don't like necessarily the institutions that are constructed around these things. Hmm. There's a couple of like funny coincidences and I just want to point them out. Uh, as a person who has no credit, going to school is the only place you can get a guaranteed loan by the government. Wow. Isn't that weird? Think about wow. it. I have no credit history. And so I can get a loan backed by the government and it's the only kind of debt that you can have that's not forgivable through bankruptcy. Right. This is a weird thing now. So I'm not specifically pointing my finger at any specific school, but it starts to feel like the administration becomes front of house for banks, mm -hmm. for loan companies. Notice also, once you graduate, your loan, the student loan that's backed by the government gets sold to a real bank. So they can wash their hands. Interesting. That's what literally happens, mm. okay? Your loan is sold to somebody else because they buy it because it's money for them. Yeah, of course, of course. So it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. And it's a very interesting thing, especially when you consider the tax advantages that institutions have, the endowments that they sit on. There's so much corruption that goes on in a lot of these places. And it's it's turning. Well, it's disillusioning kids who are highly optimistic about their future. And they think that they have to go this certain path in order to be successful. And then they do everything they were told to do. And then they wake up in their mid-20s with a bunch of debt and no job, living back in their parents' house. I was reading, I think recently, that said, something recently said, that the most common living arrangement for a man under 35 today is living with their parents still. And like, maybe some of that is cultural. Maybe some of that is generational. I don't know all the nuances of it. But I got to think part of it is the fact that 
the cost of tuition has been on like a 10x hockey stick increase since the 1980s. And the average salary of a college graduate has been doing nothing but going down for the last couple of decades. It's got to be a factor. It's like some like how is how is it not being addressed is my question. Well, we saw what happened in 2008 with the subprime mortgages tearing a financial hole in the universe. Imagine what's going to happen when students all default. Yeah. Those are scary times. People are jumping out of buildings. Right. Well, and then, yeah, it just seems like such a half-ass effort by people to fix the problem. They're just kind of like, oh, let's throw a little bit of money at it. Oh, let's talk about it during the election cycle, but we don't really do anything after anything that happens. And it's just, yeah, what are we doing here, guys? Like, so here's what I believe. I mean, I believe in capitalism and not not government to solve these kinds of problems. So some capitalists will step in and say, you know what? I made enough money. I'm going to go invest. I'm going to try to develop a program that's good for everyone, good for teachers, good for students, good for yeah. the school. I think there's a win-win scenario here. I'm, I'm not a guy who's like throwing stones and without solutions. Like, sure. I come with solutions. But when, when you understand how large organizations work, then you understand why nothing can ever happen. Mm -hmm. Have you ever served on a board before? I have not. Okay, so I explain it to people because I know it's easy from the outside. It's like, well, why don't they just change it? Well, when you serve on a board, you understand. So boards are elected to help govern an institution or organization, right? Mm -hmm. And they are financially and legally bound to govern correctly, okay? So there's a president that is that serves at the whim of the board. And the board is a group of people. It's, it's usually not less than four people, and it could be a whole lot of people, but they have different interests, and they are usually voluntary board members. Some of them get paid, and they're there because they, they have some kind of stature in the industry. They have money. And so what they do is any risky decision that the board approves, they are liable for. Mm. Just remember that, okay? So there's a radical idea that's being pros, uh, uh, proposed by the, the president. They have to ratify and they have to approve. And if they approve it, it means if this is the thing that sinks the entire institution organization, you are liable. You're the board that ended this whole great thing for 300 years. You're the ones who screwed it up. Interesting. So what the board adopts <clears throat> is the mindset of killing ideas. Yeah. Because if you do nothing new Don't and it dies, the that ain't your fault. Yeah, right. Society changed. Opportunities right. changed. New threats. We couldn't have seen it coming. That's why. Yeah. I've served on a couple served on a couple of boards. Every time we try to do something, it moves at a glacial pace. Yeah. Because it's risky. Yeah. So then is it just a generational thing? We're just gonna have to let it die down? Because I, I feel like this is the first generation that that's this is the negative effects of higher education are coming out. Before it was like everybody agreed, it was consensus. You know, where it was just, you got to go to school. If you want to get a good job, you got to go to school. And if you don't go to school, you'll be fighting against that lack of degree for the rest of your career. Now, even with tech, like massive tech companies coming out of being like, oh yeah, you don't need a college degree to work here anymore. You know, th that happening, plus the rise of tuition, plus the, the lowering of salaries out of college. There's so many things that I think are changing it. So do you, do you feel like it's just going to be a thing that people are just going to maybe stop recommending at some point or because it seems like the schools still want to continue pushing it and, I, and i'm asking this almost also as a dad by the way i got two small kids and i think about this stuff all the time because yeah. like i i'm an entrepreneur i have never had a job myself i've always just done stuff and made money and started businesses and done this thing and that thing and whatever but i'm also uh, i also know that 
like that's kind of a personality thing sometimes. And maybe my kids don't want to do that. Maybe they, they maybe they do want to go get a job and maybe they do want to work this type of a life or have this type of a lifestyle or whatever. But I'm just trying to figure out the best decision for them, like as a dad to be like, well, maybe you should consider not going to college. But then even for me, even to say it out loud is like, a, I don't know, am I just like screwing up my kid for the rest of their life because I'm going to encourage them to not go to college. And they're going to be like, oh, I wish my dad would have encouraged me to go to college because now I can't do this path that I wanted. You know what I'm saying? So I'm asking as a general cultural thing, but also with the context of like, I'm, I'm looking at it as, as a dad as well. Yeah. I, I don't know how old school systems are. They're hundreds, 2000 year old. I don't know. Yeah. It's old. Um, some of the historians tell us it's part of the British Empire that our current education model is built on to create human computers. <laughs> Literally, this is how it's described, where if you if you're fighting in the trenches in Africa and you died, they can just pull another human, drop them in and you, they could do the same job again. Hmm. So it's not made for for critical thinking, for taking risks. It's just like you're just a cog in the yeah. machine. Yeah. And that's what we've, we've inherited. So I don't I don't know, like how how old is the, the educational system in America? Couple hundred years? Yeah. 300? Mm-hmm. How old is America? 1776. So. That's what I was doing in my mind. Like, yeah. I don't know the math. I can't figure it out now. Not while I'm talking to you. 250 yeah. years, something, yeah. right? Yeah. Say 250 years, right? If it took 250 years to build the system in America, it's not going to be two years to take it down. Right. It just doesn't happen like that. Mm-hmm. Unless people like Bezos or Musk get involved where they have right. so much capital and they know how to run big things and they can change it. Because one person can change things, yeah. given the right circumstances, right? So at least I don't offer think it's a decision, change. or what's that? At least offer a decision, yeah. Or somebody like that could step in and be like, "Well, now you have this, or you have this." Well, you what could, we're saying is choice. Yes, and I believe we can have choice at very small scales. But a lot has changed in the world since those two hundred plus years ago. We have the internet. We have other educators who are credible who are using these open platforms to teach. Yeah. Hence, um, the the institutions can say, well, maybe you don't need a degree anymore. Yeah. And then what we started to realize is a degree is a poor estimation of a person's knowledge and, and skills that can be applied right. or their character. But it's shorthand and we're a lazy group of people. So we're like that piece of paper from that company or that organization says you did it. Great. Welcome aboard. Right. The smart organizations like Google make you go through like 20 interviews. Yeah. So in the interview process, you either know what you're talking about or you don't. Mm-hmm. And they're very good at finding talent. Yeah. And that's now why we're moving away from a piece of paper. Now, if you're in the creative space, if you make videos, if you do storytelling, if you do podcasting, you design, well, we have something to look at. We can tell. Mm-hmm. As long as it's not a forgery, we can say like, yes, you can do it or no, you cannot. We don't need to know you went anywhere. You, cu- you could have gone to the School of Hard Knocks for all we care. We don't even right. care. If you can and do it, you can do it. It's, it's clearly... A demonstrable skill. Right. Like if you're a bricklayer, it's like go lay down four lines of bricks. Or, and right. I can tell how fast you did it and how clean the lines are. If it's level, if it's messy, we know. Right. And so we're moving into this place now where you can actually demonstrate and assess a person much quicker than you could before. And it won't be dependent on a piece of paper. Yeah, I hope a lot of that, a lot more of that stuff comes out. You know, schools, systems like yours that you've put together, you know, that, that, are highly educational that teach real world skills that yeah. people can go and take and and learn and you know develop it into an entire career or business or whatever or even like jordan peterson has his school now that he's doing um and bringing in a bunch of professors to do online lectures and they're coming up with some some sort of accreditation or a certificate or a certification program for that 
Um, but yeah, I just hope that the, I hope that a lot more options start coming out. Yeah, like really soon. But to answer your question about what to do with your children, how old are your children? My son is four. Okay. And my daughter is just turned three. Right? Okay. You you have plenty of time. My oldest is in college. Okay. He's going to Columbia. I try to uh, say that you don't have to go to school that you don't like. And he told me, Dad, I need structure. I want the system. But I also think he's a brand name guy. Mm. So he cares about brands and that brands mean something to his own identity. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, hey, you do that. We've saved money. You go wherever you want to go. My youngest uh, is 17. He's going to finish school this year. And he's like, I'm going to go to art school. Dad, it's a no, you're not. You're not going to go to art school. There's many other options. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to take a year off school. I want you to study humanities. I want, I want you to study art and history, and you can live wherever you want in the world. Mom and dad have money for you. You want to live in Paris and throw pots? Do that. If you want to go paint with people in Spain, go do that. Just do something with your life first before you go to an art school because mm. you've lived nothing. You have nothing to reflect into the world, and that's what you're going to do. You're going to regurgitate all that garbage that people are doing online right now. Mm. Now, here's a weird thing. My son, um, since he was probably 15, 15 and a half, he already ran his own business. He's filing taxes as a kid because he's made more money before he turned 18 than I did by the time I was 22. Nice. It, the world is different. So I'm saying you don't have to fall down any kind of trap. Yeah. Uh, in the one area that I know, which is art and design, if that's where you want to go, I'll support that. But please live some life before you go there because you're going to be like all those other kids who don't know anything. You have nothing to reflect. I really nothing. like that. There's no experience. There's no there's no culture. There's no there's nothing. Yeah. I would rather have you work in a restaurant uh bussing tables so right. you can hear conversations and learn about how people live and cultures and languages mm. and just understand sociology and philosophy and different things. Then yeah. you can put that into your work and you're going to be amazing. Being a bartender or something like that. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, I guess I got some time then to, you to do. think about it. <laughs> I think you have a lot more options. Yeah. But my whole thing is I have a philosophy. That doesn't mean you have to buy my philosophy. I'm just going to teach it to you. Sure. And then you do whatever you want. So one boy says, I'm going to go to school. I'm like, go for it. Mm -hmm. I'll write the checks. The other one's like, I want to be an artist. I'm like, here's a different plan. Mm -hmm. Think about this, please. Yeah. Um, so to completely switch the conversation here um, because we're running out of time. I want to make sure I talk about some more practical sides of the business. Okay. Um, I've heard you speak fairly extensively about pricing. Um, and since I have a larger entrepreneurial crowd, um, I'd love to hear overarching philosophy and a couple of practical tips or advice that you have for people that really struggle with that part of their business, people who struggle with charging what they're worth or people who tend to constantly be broke, but not from a lack of work, just from a lack of being able to say no or being able to sell at a higher price or being able to confidently state what they believe they're worth. Um, yeah, I guess, where did you get that philosophy from and did it take you a long time to learn it? I think in life, when you're set off in the right direction, everything becomes much easier. So what I'm about to tell you came from a, just being very blessed and fortunate to be exactly where I'm supposed to be to do this thing, right? So I get out of school and I'm able to do freelance work pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And it's not great. Like I'm, I'm literally designing bank brochures where they're paying me 30 bucks an hour. I'm like, I, I'm gonna kill myself, this is terrible. <laughs> I, I did not go through this whole program so I can design bank brochures, right. like tri-fold brochures, what the hell? And then I start freelancing and then I start to realize 
what I can do in the, at the speed and quality of what I can do is faster and better than the people who are in the industry. And my bosses recognize it, whether it's on a freelance basis or with Kevin Jones or somebody else or Kyle's like, we want to give you this assignment because we like the way that you look at the world. So immediately I can see like, I'm not going to charge what they charge because I'm better than them. Mm. Objectively speaking, I'm better than them because I can see their output and how hard they're willing to work and the quality of their ideas. So it's a combination of a bunch of different things. So now I'm in this mindset where, A, I don't have a lot of living expenses. I don't buy anything. I don't eat anything. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a loft. It's $1,200 a month and it's wonderful. So aside from going get a, a, like a burrito at the taqueria, that's all, those are all my expenses. Okay, as long as I can pay off my student loans, the minimum payment, pay rent, I'm good. So that gives me a lot of power to say no. Yes. So people come knocking, I'm like, do you want it? Nope. Do you want it? Nope. Uh, these terms? No. No. I would say politely, professionally. Of course. Not for me. I got a bad vibe about it. Nope. Even when you were first starting out, even like this is early 20s. I'm just 20s. fresh out of school. Yeah. I'm saying no. And, you know, so what happened was I was freelancing at this place called Novacom when I got that call to start your business. So I told them, I got to go gone. So I'm starting my business now. I have no clients. You know who called me? Kevin Jones, Novacom, Imaginary Forces, all the places I'd been. Hmm. So that's the first lesson for all of you. I don't care how old you are, wherever you go to the best job you can, regardless of how much you're being paid, because what's more important is the reputation you leave behind. Hmm. When you do that and you leave on good terms, when you leave gracefully, they will give you work. So my first clients were all the people that I had previously worked with, naturally, because I don't know anybody. Okay, so some art director from Novacom, Lewis House, calls me up and not Lewis House, Lewis Hall. Lewis House is a different person. Lewis Hall calls me up and says, hey, Chris, uh, can you design some logos for this, this channel? I'm like, sure, it's going to be this amount. He's like, okay. Now that amount that I asked him for was more than what it would cost me to hire someone else to do. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm going to call my former roommate. He comes in. Like, hey, you want to do work? How much you charge? And I can't remember what he said. Let's say it's 30 bucks an hour. I'm like, fantastic, you're hired. So I'm paying him 240 a day. I'm probably getting paid 500 bucks. Yeah, yeah. And so naturally, everybody's like, well, it's not your work, Chris. I'm like, I know. So he could do it to this level through art direction, literally saying, hey, let's try these ideas and I got some sketches and I'll work on some things. I could cover the difference, hmm. but not spend the same amount of time. So already as a 22-year-old entrepreneur straight out of school, yeah. I'm already trying the entrepreneurial game and it's working. Yeah. So now I'm Exploring getting more work than I can leverage. do. Even within the context of being a freelancer, you're Instantly. already doing that. Yeah, because yeah, I'm a bastard. I'm lazy <laughs> and I have friends and it works out. Yeah. So whenever there's more opportunities in your capacity to do the work, you're on the right side of supply and demand. Mm. Yeah. And so I was working out of my loft and they didn't care who did the work. They didn't care. They just sent money. And we sent work. So we just emailed it to them. Great, great. And they just kept working. Yeah. And another opportunity that I got was by helping friends from school who wound up becoming pretty successful themselves. And so this is the key to life. Like you're not in school anymore. What you need to do is you need to work with people who are generous and who like to tell other people about things that they like. Hmm. This is very important. There are people who are not going to be generous who don't like to tell people because there's a secret. They don't want to give away their secrets. Yeah. So when I worked with my friend from school for no money, when they got out of school, they started telling other people about us. That led to a gig. That led to another gig. And now we're directing car commercials. <laughs> and it's pretty cool. I'm like, how did this happen? So already now I'm playing the game of 
how much can I ask for before they get upset and say no? Yeah. And it turns out a lot. <laughs> it's like a lot more than I thought it was. Yeah, I'll give you an example, okay? <laughs> I was freelancing as a business for Imaginary Forces. Imaginary Forces got so much work and they had a very small team and there were not enough people to do the work, so they would send their overflow work to me. Now, at this point in time, Kyle thought it was just me doing all the work. He'd send the work, I would do it, but there are three of us now, or four of us at this time, and my friends from school, Michelle, Jesse, and Vanessa, they would just do the design work. And I would go to the meeting, I'm like, here's the work, what do you think? He's like, fantastic, great. I always wondered, like, how come he doesn't think, how can you do so much work as one person with so many different styles? Hmm. He never wondered. Okay, and his his producer, her name is Saffron, redheaded woman. She would call me and she's like, "We got another another job for you." I'm like, "Great! It's going to be seven hundred dollars a day now." And she's like, "What? You just charged us five hundred, and then you changed it to six hundred last week. Why is it seven or eight hundred dollars now?" I'm like, "Cause it is. I, Cause I'm a bastard." I say to her, "If you have a problem with it, check with Kyle." Never had a problem. They just kept paying. I just stood my ground. So I, I, and I told everybody at the office, I'm gonna tell them who's doing the work. So I go to another meeting, we're doing a bunch of work for him. Uh, maybe it's for a Taco Bell campaign or something like that. And it's a bargain for him, it is a bargain, even yeah, at $800. Yeah. Yeah. I show him the work, he's like, this is good, I like this, this, send me the files, make these changes, I'm like, cool. I said, I just need to let you know something. He's like, what? I don't do the work by myself. And he goes like, what? There are a bunch of us working. He's like, how many? I'm like, three of us. He goes, you've been ghostwriting this whole time? I'm like, yes. And I asked him, did you ever wonder how I was able to do so much work in 24 hours? Yes, I just thought you were great. I'm like, are you cool? It's like, okay. Just kept giving us more work. <laughs> so I, I think what happens here is there's a narrative that's being built in my mind. And the narrative is this, is, I try to ask for more. I stood my ground. It keeps working. Yeah, it keeps working. So why would I ever in my life now ask for less? Right. Let's flip the situation. Yes. Oh, um, yeah. I don't know if I should ask for thirty bucks an hour. Why don't I ask for twenty four? It's easier to say yes. And now it's like the narrative I tell myself now in the bizarro world is: if I charge less, they'll say yes, and I lose the friction. Uh, but then I don't have enough money, and I can't hire anybody. So now I go down the vicious cycle. Hmm. So I just happened to be pointed the right direction with the right amount of cockiness and self-belief and the right opportunities that can just keep asking for more and more. And they just kept giving me more. I'll give you one more example. There's this really critical moment about two years into our business. And Kyle says to me from Imaginary Forces, Chris, you want to be a big part of a small thing or a small part of a big thing? I'm like, I'd like to be a small part of a big thing. Because why don't we just merge your company into ours? I'm two years out of school, a wow. year and a half, and already the preeminent main title designer in the world who is credited as having a resurgence of main titles on the Renaissance, he's in the history books and he's only been doing this for a couple of years, is offering to buy my company. Hmm. And he's like, how much do you want for your company? One million dollars. <laughs> he goes, what? I'm like, I love what I do. If you want me to come work for you with my entire team, I got to make it worse for them and my partner. It's a million dollars because that's a lot. It's a bargain. He didn't say yes. Later on, he's like, I should have bought you. <laughs> it was cheap. Right. And this right. is where I developed the philosophy 
the price I give you today will always be the cheapest price. Wait till you see tomorrow's bill. Yeah. It'll always be more than today. Yeah, there, there's a great line in The Alchemist that talks about that. Um, I, have you read that book or know the Are you talking concept? about Rory Sutherland's book? No, or, no. Or the, um, the, 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 the fictional school. novel, yeah, The yes, Alchemist. Yes, okay. correct, yeah. Um, and I don't, I'm going to completely butcher it, but it was essentially exactly what you were just talking about, where this, the, this guy had done something for the, the main rich guy in the, in the story. And he was like divvying out money to people and he gave him an equal share, even though he had done like a smaller amount of work or whatever. And the guy that he gave it to was like, oh, you gave me too much. You overpaid me or you didn't, you, you gave me too much to, for what I did or whatever. Right. And, uh, and he basically, he said, keep it and then take this lesson with you, which is basically, you know, never ask the universe for less because it might just answer you or something like that. Mm. It was always like, a, hmm, that is a very fair point. And to mm. your, to your point in talking about that, like it, it puts you in that negative spiral where you start, then start, then you start believing you're only worth $24 an hour. You're not really worth the $30 an hour because that's what people say yes to. And then you can't afford to hire people, so you just have to do all the work. So now you're overworked and you're underpaid just because you didn't just go ask for what you thought might have been just a little bit more. And then the standing your ground thing too is like that's the difference just between objections and complaints. You know, some I think a lot of people instantly go to lowering prices as soon as they present price when they encounter any friction at all. When in reality, a lot of times, it's not a real objection. It's just, she had a little bit of sticker shock to be like, wait, wouldn't, wasn't it just $600? Yes. Well, why is it 700? Because that's what it is. Um, all right. <laughs> and then they just keep writing the checks to you every week. It you wasn't know? that easy, but I'll just say, you know. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure. There's a lot more friction. Their phone calls are made. I'm sure yeah. somebody slammed the phone, but I right. still got my check. Yeah, there's a lot of friction. Yeah. A lot more friction than what I just presented. Yeah. However, it is not even just, it's not them just saying like, no, that's not enough. Yeah. You know, it's just sometimes you got to stand your ground and know know what you're worth. I just do, I do want to say this because I, I know some people are going to listen to this like, you mother effer, you crazy, cocky, you delusional, this will never work. I'm going to tell you the story from the other side now. Okay. Okay. We were working on this job for a national um, baked goods company, let's just say. Huge uh, six-figure job. And we're having trouble executing on this idea. We sold them an idea that we brought in teams of experts and they just couldn't do. We had seven people working on doing a test that the clients, and we were ashamed of showing the test. It's not right. Mm. And so I'm, I'm scrambling. My team is desperate. It's not even my gig. I, my, one of my guys is directing the job and I'm, I'm making phone calls. And I find this guy, I find this guy and he's a particle specialist, okay? He does particle simulations. Like, you know, in Roland Emmerich's film, The Day After Tomorrow, and mm -hmm. buildings are collapsing and tornadoes are ripping through and the, there's a tidal wave. That's not water, those are particles. Some genius guy or gal is in there programming and just running simulations so that it looks like water knocking over cars because you can't animate that stuff. Mm. You can't. So I get this guy's name, name and number. His name is Riff Dagger, super interesting guy. I'm calling also him. Also a dope name. Riff Dagger, dude. Come on, guys. <laughs> Riff like Dagger. You just made that shit Yeah, up. like Riff Van Winkle and, and then Jack the Ripper. Riff Dagger is this guy. <laughs> and I call him. I'm like, um, hey, we're having some problems with this job. And he goes, let me guess. And he guessed every single freaking problem that we had. I'm like, oh, my God. 
Please tell me you're available. Yeah, right. Here's what he said. I bet you have a whole team and they're used to working with large pipelines with technical directors to solve all their problems and it's taking too long to get a result and they're just saying they need this and that more render power and they just give me a lot of reasons that right i'm like oh my god is you, are you here are you in the room <laughs> right. i'm like yes that's the problem that is the freaking problem okay he goes i'll tell you what don't pay me anything i'm gonna run a test you look at the test it'll be in your box in two hours i'm like what the fudge two there's hours. no way you could do this in two hours I didn't say that out loud. Yeah, yeah. So I wait. Bring here's the file. I'm like, oh, um, this isn't working for me. And he goes, okay, sit there, hold on. Another file appears. I'm like, how is he doing this? Yeah. We have a team of seven or eight people that takes three days to turn around one test. Wow. He's doing this and get this. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm I'm not. Uh, I can't really hear you right now. I'm at my mechanics. I'm in the auto shop right now. I'm like, he's like not even in front of he's his not even desk. in front of his computer, <laughs> and he's doing this. Do you know how he's doing this? And this just like blew my mind. He was using his Android or his iPhone to remote log into his desktop, which is connected to a master, massive computer render farm. He was instructing you with code what to do. So he's like, wow. okay, change the parameters. And because he's a math physics computer guy. He's not using software, it's his own thing. Wow. And so it's highly optimized. He's like, they're using too many particles and they're not putting a bounty. I'm like, well, I don't know, but this is working. Yeah. So he goes, what do you want to do? I said, I need to sleep on this. Next day I wake up, I'm like, hey, I think I found our guy. I run into the team, look at this. And like, when did he do this? I'm like, yesterday, when? Between coffee breaks, I think, <laughs> I don't know. And like, I think we need to go with this guy. And so this is crazy. We fired the entire team. Wow. We just send them all packing like it's not working, it's not working because we're spending a lot of money. Each one of those people, $700, $900 a day, $400. We're just spending so much money. We're spending thousands of dollars a day getting nothing done, giving our clients nothing good to look at. Yeah. This guy's doing tests like instantly. So I ask him, how much is it? How much do you charge? He goes, it's $1,800 a day. I'm like, wow. <laughs> okay. I've never paid anybody $1,800 a day at that point. I was like, this is ridiculous. You're hired. I go into my producer's office. I said, this is our guy. He's like, who's your guy? Riff Dagger, man. <laughs> Riff Dagger's guy. Don't you know who Riff is? Yeah. <laughs> right? He went to him day after tomorrow. Yeah. And, and they're like, how much is he? It's 1800 bucks. And they're policy people. They're like, we've never paid anybody $1,800. Yeah. I said, what did it cost for all those people? $4,500. Yeah. He did this in hours. We need to hire this guy. This is a long, funny story to tell you. I'm on the other side making right. a case for paying a guy that an amount of an obscene amount of money that I've never paid before because they're that good. Mm. And he knew he was that good. Yeah, which is why I did the work for free first. Well, he was no, he was confident as hell. That's what I'm saying. He was yeah, just like, like, if you don't like this, no, right, nothing. Exactly. Nothing on me. Exactly. But you're probably gonna hire me <laughs> at this point, you know. When you know, you know. Yeah, right. And he knew. <laughs> He's that oh, good. Man, so I'm not telling you like just from take it from me as the seller of goods. I'm right. also telling you take it from me as the buyer of goods. Yeah, and you were happy to pay it. That, that's I think that's the you thing the that, that screws people in their mind is that they, whenever they put a higher dollar amount, they they carry their baggage of their poor relationship with money into the mind of the buyer. And they just kind of automatically assume that like, hey, maybe you probably don't want to pay this because I've never paid this. And it's just it's just not true. It's just it, 
money is just the means of exchange. It's just the thing that you trade for value. And if the value that you're providing is really solving a problem that they're experiencing, then it is worth paying the money that they're paying. And they're happy to pay the money to get the problem solved. And I think that's that like really screws with people people's minds sometimes. They're like they think that they're almost like taking advantage of somebody by raising their prices or by sticking by their price or whatever. And it's like a lot of times it's just you're just it's just not true. You're 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 casting your own view of this of the situation onto the other party without giving thought to how how hard it was for them to solve this problem to begin with. There's a word for it. What's it's that? called projection. Hmm. You take your life values, your sense of self-worth, and you project it onto other people when we know that no two people think the same thing. Yeah. You take your poor relationship with money, your poor evaluation of time and value, and you project it onto the person sitting in front of you. So if Riff had an unhealthy attitude about his own life and his own circumstance, he would have said, $400, Chris? I'm like, done. Yeah, right. When, when in our world, we were spending so much money. What, what you don't understand, too, unless you've worked in visual effects, the seven or eight people that we had working on this project, I had to rent seven or eight supercomputers. Hmm. I had to hire an IT team to set them up. I had to rent software to run this thing and to buy these, not buy, rent these render blades wow. in the cloud and in the back room. We just returned all of it. We're like, we're canceling all of it. We don't need this. We got right. the, the we machine got, here. Riff. And he did it. <laughs> yeah. He did it. Now, Riff is a character. I mean, I'm not saying like he was perfect. Yeah. He's an right. awesome human being. But there's a price to pay for his genius because when I met him, I'm like, yo, you're 45. He's like, dude, I'm 28. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay. It, it aged him. I'm like, wow. And he goes, I know, bro, you you are much older than me and you look younger than me. I'm like, yeah, because you're, you're burning a candle from both ends, Yeah, no which kidding. is like a line from like, um, from Blade Runner, yeah. uh, Rutger Hauer, you know, the, 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 the candle that burns twice as bright, yeah, burns yeah. twice as fast, the Tyrell Corporation. That's so good. Um, okay, so you, uh, I want to wrap up the story here. So you mentioned earlier this company ran from 2005 to 2018, 2019. Is this 1995? 1995, sorry. Yeah. Yes. 1995 to... So 25-ish years. And the reason that it stopped was that you were getting too heavily involved in education, essentially, and your team was like, hey, maybe we should stop doing all this other work and we should just really go double down on this piece. Is that... Correct, is that? Yeah, more or less. It was a question of, Chris, what do you want to do? Yeah. Does this still excite you? I'm like, it doesn't excite me. Does it excite you? No, it doesn't excite us either. Let's all go over here. Hmm. Let's leave the golden goose and let's jump on the pirate ship and see what happens. So how did the education begin then? What do you mean? Like, you got to that point. It, did what, Up to that point, you were already doing education. Yes, I'm running two companies in parallel. Correct. So I'm saying, like, what made you go, I should start teaching this stuff? At the very beginning? Yes, or like the, the beginning of the education company. Oh, it was because one of my friends uh, from Art Center said, hey, I know you want to be an educator. Because I had been teaching for 15 years at that point, but at the private art schools. Oh, gotcha. People don't know that, Gotcha. Right? So I'll explain it a little bit. So okay. his, his name is Jose Caballé, and he comes over to me, and he's like, I know you're interested in education, because he had seen some posts I had been making about running workshops. He goes, I've been running an education company. I know how to do this. Let's join forces. We partnered up. We started this company called The School. And we ran the school for two and a half years together until we couldn't run it together. I'm like, I got to break up with you. He's like, okay, cool. We separated. I started The Future. Yeah. And, and he's the one who got me into going onto YouTube and creating information products 
and moving away from a one to few to one to many model. Okay. And I'm an I'm an operator, so I'm like, let's go. I can make this work better and faster. So let's keep going. And he was like, eh, I don't like the way this is going. I'm like, okay, I think we need to separate then. Hmm. Right? So then the future now is, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is an education platform that helps people do the thing that fires them up for a living, essentially. It's not That's like, a, it's not like a design school. It's, it, it is. It's hard to put uh, one label around it. Okay. What we do is we look for gaps. What's the gap in the market? Okay. And we try to fill those gaps. So in the beginning, we thought it was design-oriented courses. So we did typography. We did user experience design, things like that. Mm. And people would buy those products. It's fantastic. It's working. And then we saw, like, wait a minute. If you know how to do a skill, but you don't want to sell a skill, what's the point? So then we saw a gap in the business part of it, and yeah. we wanted to go and cover that. So we started teaching negotiations, sales pricing, those kinds of concepts, and then that started to take off, and that's what people now know us for. Gotcha. Okay. So I know there's a bunch of internet trolls yeah. out there. Like, uh, first of all, like this kid don't know how to do anything. I bet you he's never done anything. Like, I'm not a kid. I'm 51 years old. <laughs> I've run a company longer than you've been alive. Yeah. That company has grossed over 80 million dollars. The second company is on its way to, to doing that too. So I do know something. And yeah. the thing that most people don't know is that I taught at the private art schools for 15 years before I even made a freaking video on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. So when you see me like doing whiteboards and like explaining concepts. There's a reason why I know how to do that because I put in the reps. Yeah. You built every skill along the way, along the journey. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you're working with eight students in a classroom for five hours, you either get good or you go home. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because they'll fire you. Right. And you won't enjoy it. Yeah. It, it, it's not fun to do something you suck at for extended periods of time without getting better at it. Yeah. I'm speaking from personal Without experience. making progress, yes, yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, okay, so so now the future is 100% what you focus on. So you basically were yes. like, all right, well, let's go ahead and shut down this part. Was that a difficult decision after doing it for 25 years? It, it was a difficult decision for about 24 hours, and then it wasn't. Really? Okay, yeah. so no like mourning period of like, that's, you know, goodbye to my, my child, my, my business child here? You know, you would think that it would be more painful. And if... If I had to shut down blind as a company without this other thing I'm super excited about, I think I would have to mourn. Hmm. I would probably feel like I'm a failure. Like I couldn't make it last forever. Hmm. Um, I couldn't adapt to the market forces and be current and relevant to the industry. I would probably feel that. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah. But I don't know how else to say this, but it's like if you have a beat up car, but you got a better, cooler car, that's the newer model. Hmm. Like, okay, you serve it's your purpose. Thank you. Yeah. I'm moving on. I'm ready to go in the new car now. And the new car has has bigger wheels and a bigger engine and it's, and it's electric or whatever. It's like, let's go. Yeah. And so we moved over and immediately after we said, we're not gonna take on any more client work, our, one of our favorite clients on the best project that we could ever hope for, a video game company, said, hey, we want you to work on this commercial. And that was the true test. Words are cheap. Yeah. Until you have to actually lose something and sacrifice something, right. it's just words, right? It's easy if you're going out of business, like, we're not going to take on clients work, client work anymore. Right. But when we say internally, we're not going to take on client work, and one of our favorite clients calls us up and it's like, you know, I'll tell you, it's Xbox. Hmm. We had this big launch. We love working with you guys. It's more Xbox work. Normally, like, woo. I had to turn to my creative director, Matthew, and say, we're going to turn this down, right? He goes, yeah. And that surprised me. 
That he said yes? Yes. Because, you know, when you work 10, 15 years to get to this point in which Xbox will call you to do a project, we're both gamers. Yeah. This is a dream job. It's like I could either work on Marvel Comics, UFC, or Xbox, and I'd be really, really happy for the rest of my life. And they put a big number in front of us. And they're like, it's your job to lose. It's yours if you want it. And we're like, no. And, and when he said no, I'm like, really? Okay. It's hmm. a $400,000 job. Got to really believe in the, new, in the new mission. I mean, nowhere in my life is $400,000 an insignificant amount of money. Sure. And then we said no. They tried to convince us in many different ways. And then they came back with an even bigger job. I'm like, no. The second <laughs> no was even easier, despite the budget even being bigger. Yeah. We're like, no. So then they offered to buy the company. <laughs> it didn't work out, but oh my God, it have been good money for me. You mean you want to buy something I don't use anymore? Yeah. It's right. fantastic. For a lot of money. Yeah. That sounds yeah. like a good deal. Seven figures. Yeah. Sign here. <laughs> I blame Matthew, but that's another story for another day. Uh, well, listen, this has been an awesome conversation. I appreciate you coming on. I got one final question for okay. you before we wrap up. Um, this is a question I've asked hundreds of times now at this point on the show. Um, and I'm always curious to hear the perspective from somebody like you who has acquired, accumulated a ton of knowledge in a lot of different verticals, but also has a lot of really great relationships and people who you've depended on, relied on throughout your career to get to where you are now. So who you know or what you know, which of those two is more important in life and why? It's clearly who you know for a lot of different reasons. It's easy to learn. It's not so easy to find the right people to help fill mm. in the gaps. The barrier. Yeah, and I think we'd be a $100 million company if we knew the right people. Mm. But we're not. Yeah. We're yeah, like yeah. a 4 or $5 million company right now. Great way to wrap up the show, man. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Christo. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's travischapel.com slash team. And my biggest ask of you since I'm sharing my friends with you is to share this episode with a friend of yours that hasn't listened to the show yet. Then leave us a quick five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify. It would mean the world to us as it helps us make sure that this show continues to be more valuable to you. Thanks in advance, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.